15th chapter of Genesis. We're about 28% of the way through this study, and uh, let's dig in, beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And the Lord brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. Then the Lord said to, him, to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring shall be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. And you shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates." Sixty years ago, George Matheson was engaged to be married to a woman who loved him deeply. And then a few months before their marriage, he went to the doctor and he got a diagnosis that within a matter of months he would go blind. And she said to him, I love you, but I cannot marry a blind man. She left. His dreams were shattered. He thought about taking his life. But instead of picking up a knife, he picked up a quill and he wrote, Oh, love that will not let me go. And I ask you, on what grounds could he write that? Did you hear about the preacher who was called to a suicide location, a place where a man was attempting to commit suicide? 
When the preacher got there, he yelled to the man, stop, stop. And he saw the man, he was 400 feet above the water on a suspension bridge. He said, stop, I just need five minutes of your time. I need to listen to your complaints. I need to enable you to gain a better perspective. And the man allowed him. He came over and they talked for 10 minutes and then they both jumped. This week I read about a woman who came home from a long, hard day and her little girl met her and said, Mommy, Mommy, listen to me. I have to tell you all about my day. And after about 10 sentences, her mother said, Now listen, darling, let's, let's have dinner together in just a few minutes and you can tell me the rest of the story. As soon as they sat at the table, a phone rang. Mother got up and answered the phone and the call was a long one, and when she got back to the table, everyone had completed eating. She shoveled the food into her mouth, cleaned up the kitchen, helped this little girl's older brother do his homework, and finally it was time for the little girl to go to bed, and her mother was there putting her to bed, and the little girl looked up and said, Mommy, do you really love me if you never listen to me? That's the question Abram's asking in chapter 15. Somebody has said, cowards fear before the battle, heroes fear afterwards. And that's exactly the case with Abram. He's won a great battle. Last week in chapter 14, he defeats a coalition of kings. He comes back with his nephew Lot and all of the household. He's met at the valley of Shiva, the king's valley. He's met there by two kings, King Sodom and then the king of righteousness, Melchizedek. And yet the distance between chapter 14 and 15 is measured in three words, after these things. After these things, all of the blessings of life and joy and blessing for Melchizedek seem like a distant memory. What possesses him is the promise God made to him 20 years earlier and had reiterated over those years that he would have his own son and heir, and yet now he's well into his 90s and all he has is fear and questions. In 1985, Whitney Houston recorded a song that Janet Jackson didn't want to sing. It took her one take. And it became her third greatest hit. You probably know that song. It's a question. How will I know? Now in theological parlance, that's called epistemology. How do I know? How will I know? Whitney's singing about the love of a man, but Abram's got the same question, and he's thinking about a love of someone far superior to a man or a woman. He's thinking about God. How will I know that he loves me? Whitney and her mother, who sings the sidetrack, say, you can't trust your feelings, and Abram knows that. In chapter 14, he has to be high as a kite, seeing the pre-incarnate Christ and receiving from him gifts that he could never have imagined. And yet, within the space of one chapter, probably somewhere between five and ten years, all those feelings have evaporated. And now he's got nothing but questions and fear. This week I talked to a friend who's in his mid-80s. 
He reminds me of Abram in this text. This man's taught the Bible for over 50 years. He's preached hundreds of sermons. He's walked with the Lord as long as I've been alive, and yet now, in his 80s, he's asking fundamental questions. It seems as though everything's up in the air. Things that were once nailed down seem to be up for grabs. He knows more, probably, than many of you have ever known, and yet he is in deep despond. That's Abram. Forty-five years ago, I heard R.C. Sproul make the statement that if he was on a desert island somewhere, with no hope of ever being released from that island, and they said, his captors said, you can have one book. R.C. said, the one book I'd want is the Bible. And when I heard him say that, I thought, well, duh. I mean, I think there are a lot of Christians that would say that, but then he didn't stop there. He said, you know, if I only had one book of the Bible that I could stake the rest of my life on, it would be the book of Hebrews. Because in the book of Hebrews, it contains all the substance of the Old and New Testaments. And I thought, well, many, many thoughtful Christians might say the same thing, but he didn't stop there. He said, if I was allowed only one chapter of the Bible, the chapter I'd select is this chapter here, Genesis 15. You know why? Because when it comes to trusting the Lord, it's not based on our feelings. It's based on His heart. And what you see in this chapter is the very heart of God. And you can stake your life on it. So let's dig in. First of all, notice the tenderness. Look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now it's interesting that he is in nearly the same location he was in the previous chapter. And yet it's years later. He's at a place where David will, in about a thousand years, build a city, the city of God, Jerusalem. He's in the same place where he turned his back on the king of Sodom, and then he turned his face fully in the direction of Melchizedek and took from him everything he was offering. This is a place of tremendous triumph. This is a place where he celebrated victory, but far more than that, he celebrated an encounter with the living God. He met Melchizedek. This was a high point in his life, and yet now, in this same place, years later, he's lonely and desperate and fearful. In 1994, Michael Jordan retired for the first time from the Chicago Bulls. And when he retired, he had led that team to six world championships. And in the opinion of many, he had a lot of basketball left in him. And so they asked him the, the obvious question, how can you retire when you've got so much left in the tank? He said, because I don't feel appreciated in Chicago. And when I read that, I said, seriously? Michael Jordan doesn't feel appreciated? They put a statue up. He can eat anywhere in that city for no cost. He was the king of Chicago. How can he not feel 
appreciated. And yet that's exactly the way Abram feels. God promised him a son when he was 75 years old, and here he's over 90 and he hasn't had one. He wants God to make good on his promise that he made in the town of Haran and in the place of Bethel. But God hasn't delivered. And he's wondering what's it all about. Not to have an heir means it's it. Not to have an heir means everything that the Lord has done to you will stop. Years ago when Barb and I lived in another city, we town, uh, we were called by a friend to come down to Charlottesville to the place where he's in law school and, and spend a, a few days. And so we said, sure, we'll go. We drove down to Charlottesville, and when Sunday morning rolled around, Jim said to us, do you want to go to church? We said, yeah, we'll go to church. Where do you want to go? He said, oh, we'll go to a place I normally go. And so we went to the church. He didn't tell us anything about it before we went. Afterwards, total silence, nothing said. So we get to brunch, and I say, hey, Jimmy, what did you think of the sermon? He said, in two words, empty rhetoric. <laughs> and in two words, he described my exact feelings. The guy preached for 25 minutes, and it was empty rhetoric. And that's exactly what Abram is thinking about what God is saying. The Bible doesn't tell us what he's thinking, but when you look at what he says, it's not far from that Charlottesville critique. The first thing the Lord says to him is, fear not. Why? Because he's full of it. And at this point, Abram's perspective is that the promises of God are empty rhetoric. Then third, notice the truth. Look at verses 4 and 5. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man, Eleazar, shall not be your heir. Your, own very, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. He said, look up toward the heaven and number the stars, if you were able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. Notice God doesn't chide him. God isn't repelled by his faithlessness. God isn't repelled by his fear or his anger. In the face of all of it, he draws near to him. The Lord's not anything like you and me. We have to be convinced to be nice. <laughs> we have to be convinced to go to someone in Abram's position. The Lord needs no convincing. He draws near to him. Remember when uh, Lazarus dies, Jesus' friend? Jesus hears about it days earlier, and yet when he hears that he's sick, he doesn't go. Instead of dropping everything and heading to Bethany, Jesus waits where he is. In fact, he waits until he's, die, he's died and he's already buried. No one is more distraught than Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. And both of them come to Jesus separately, and yet they both have the same thing to say. Lord, if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
And their logic is sound. They've seen the Lord heal. They've seen the Lord speak, and healing came out of his mouth. But when their very own brother needs Jesus most, he stays away. Somebody has said we live in a world of illusion where our senses have been dulled by our sin and mirages of light that this world offers. And that's Abram's condition. Nothing makes sense to him. So you know what the Lord does? He takes him outside and he says, look up into the sky. Try to count the stars if you can. That number will resemble the number of your descendants. And the Bible says Abram trusted the Lord. 2,000 years later, Paul will write about it and he he says, Abram believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. You know what that means? At that moment when he's outside and the Lord says, look up, and he looks up and the Lord says, as many stars as you can see, that will resemble your descendants. At that moment, the Lord puts Abram in a right relationship with him. The word believe there literally means more than mental assent. It means to lean into the one making the promise. So think of it. In the face of his fear, God comes to him and doesn't simply give him another promise. He actually gives him proof. Finally, notice the triumph. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now imagine you were on a desert island. For the rest of your life, you were cordoned off from anyone you knew. You had to be there. You had the food supply, but that's where you would spend your your last days. And somebody said, I won't give you a book, and I won't give you a book of a book, and I won't give you a chapter. I'll give you one verse of the Bible. What would it be? John 3.16, Romans 8.28, the first verse of of, uh, the 23rd Psalm. R.C. Sproul said, I wouldn't take any of those verses. I'd take verse 17 of Genesis 15. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. That's what he'd take. You know why? Because God's not offering another promise. He's offering himself. He's offering undeniable proof that he himself will do what he says he will do. You see, in antiquity, if you wanted to make a contract, if you wanted to enter into an agreement with someone, you didn't shake hands. You didn't go get an attorney and draw up a contract. You didn't uh, simply do pinky uh, promise or square or whatever it is. (laughs) You'd go get an animal. You and the one you were making a deal with, you'd both get an animal and you'd take that animal to the priest. And the priest would cut that, both of those animals in half. And he'd set up two altars. On one altar, he'd put the two halves of the two animals. And on the other altar, he'd put the other two halves. And then he would say to the parties, if you mean what you're promising, you will walk in a figure eight between those two altars. 
several times. And by walking between those pieces, what you are saying to the other party is, if I don't make good on my promise, let what happened to those animals happen to me. I swear on my own life. So look at what we have here. Abram brings these animals, five of them, to the priest. And you know the number five is significant, right? The number of grace. He brings five animals. He goes and he builds altars, two altars. He puts half of the pieces on one altar and half of the pieces on the other. It's not one animal or two, it's five. And when those pieces are arranged, the Bible says Abram spends a lot of time chasing away birds of prey that are looking for dinner. And notice when it gets dark, there's only one party that walks through the pieces. It's not Abram. It's God. This is a one-way covenant. God is saying here, if I don't keep my promise to you, let me be cut into pieces. The Bible says when the sun goes down and when it's dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between those pieces. Think of it. When God shows up and he judges Sodom and Gomorrah, he does it in fire. When he shows up at the burning bush, He shows up in fire. When he shows up on Mount Sinai or Mount Carmel, he shows up in fire because in the Old Testament, fire symbolizes the presence of God. You see, what R.C. is saying is, if I'm living on a desert island, I'm alone and I'm lonely and I'm fearful and I've got one verse of the Bible to pick, I'm picking this one because this tells me with no uncertainty, this is exactly what God will do for me. In the midst of my discouragement, in the midst of my doubt and my questions, the Lord doesn't make another promise. He swears His own death. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says of this incident, when God wanted to make, give proof to Abram, He swore by Himself because there was no one greater that He could swear by. You see, when you're lonely and depressed, when you're adrift in a sea of fear, When you believe that no one loves you, especially God, and all His promises are bunk and empty rhetoric, and when all you have is questions and no answers, what you need is a picture of God walking between the pieces. You know what else? 2,000 years later, in this exact place, God goes one better. He doesn't just walk through the pieces. He walks to the cross. He becomes the sacrifice. He's cut into pieces so that you and I might be made whole. You know, when I talk to my friend this week, and I hear his five questions he has. He tells me yesterday his five questions. I'm not going to go pretending that I have all the answers or maybe in any of them. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, well, before you get to your questions, let's just nail down what we know. 
And the best place to nail it down is at the cross. You know, Charles Spurgeon, I mention him a lot. 150 years ago, the Prince of Preachers in London. He used to take three months off every summer because of depression. Here's a guy who started an orphanage. Built a huge metropolitan tabernacle in London. He preached to five to 10,000 people a week. They started schools and institutes. They did as much social justice as you can imagine in that city and beyond. And yet for three months every summer, he, he had to take a leave from the pulpit because of discouragement, depression. Maybe it was chemical. Maybe it was circumstantial. Do you know what he said? God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to make a mistake. Therefore, if you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Abram did. Do you? Think about that. Amen.